On this episode of Regular Investor, Jake the Stock Guy podcast, Jake interviews Peter Tugman, the Einstein of Wall Street. He's one of the most photographed people ever to be on Wall Street. Make sure you guys go check out his Wall Street Global Trading Academy at WSGTA.com with discount code capital E-O-W-S-10. This episode is made possible by the Jake the Stock Guy Options Educational Group. Visit JakeTheStockGuy.com to sign up today. Let me tell you something. There is no nobility in poverty. I have been a rich man and I have been a poor man and I choose rich every fucking time. Because at least as a rich man, when I have to face my problems, I show up in the back of a limo wearing a $2,000 suit and a $40,000 gold fucking watch. Hey everybody, this is Jake from jakethestockguy.com. I'm here with the Einstein of Wall Street. He has been uh, the most he's been the most photographed person on the New York Stock Exchange, uh, featured on CNBC, uh, Fox News, CNN. Um, we have the pleasure of speaking with him today and uh, his name's Peter Tunch- Tunchman. Tuckman. Tuckman. Awesome. Sorry, uh, names are a little okay, hard. Okay, no worries. And uh, we have the pleasure of speaking with him today. And uh, we, from we the just, floor of the New York Stock Exchange. Yeah, from the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. How about that? Yeah. Yeah. So the uh, greatest finance, the greatest financial institution in the world, still relevant, still viable, still full of people, still where still where all the action is, and it controls all the other markets around the world. That's amazing. Yeah, I, I don't know all the facts or all the numbers, but isn't it something like $150 trillion in liquidity? You know what? I don't know that number for, per se, but some, it's possible. It may it's be a, a bit, little it's bit, a bit per year. We trade about a billion shares a day here. There's about 3,500 3, stocks actively traded here. Sorry. It's okay. There are and... about 3,500 stocks actively traded. About three market makers, probably about... We, we once had a staff and support system of probably 7,000 people. Now, unfortunately, it's probably down. It was down to around eight or 900, and then there's COVID. So we're kind of running at a bit more of a skeleton crew. As you know, a lot of people don't want to come back to work. So we suffer from the yeah. same thing as, as all the other workforce. I believe it. You know, I love, I love your style. I, uh, I've been following you for a little while now. Um, maybe you could tell our audience a little bit about your, uh, your background, like your parents, where you grew up, kind of just your upbringing, if you will. Sure. A pleasure. So I actually, and it's unusual because it's not a common background. Although, I mean, I, my journey along the way has been very special. So my, um, I grew up in New York City. My parents are Eastern European. Uh, they are Holocaust survivors. They um, survived four years in Auschwitz in the concentration camps, lost almost everyone in their family. And their journey was quite particularly brutal. My father, you know, watched his mother murdered right in front of him uh, by a Gestapo. My mother was face to face with uh, Joseph Mengele, the doctor, the death doctor, you know, as he sent her parents to the gas chamber. And my namesake was a young boy, my mother's sister's young son, who was two years old. And they were going to send her to the work camp and they were going to kill the child. And she said, I won't leave my child. And so she ended up going to the gas chamber as well. His name was Peter. So that's the dark side of the existence. My parents ended up, they didn't know each other before the war. They met in a displaced person camp after the war, 
right? Many people, you know, who had lost all of their family members sort of congregated still in Germany after the war, uh, after the, they had been liberated by the, curiously enough, the Russians, the English, and the United States uh, were sort of try, were huddled together in Germany at the time, trying to find out where to go next, right? They wanted to see if any family members had survived because when they were deported, nobody knew where anyone went. They didn't know who was dead or alive. Then my parents ended up having lost all their family members, met each other uh, wow. just, by, just by happenstance. They fell in love, love at first sight. And um, they were married for 66 years. They lived into their 90s. My father was a very well-known doctor, diagnostician, internist here in New York City. My mother was his part life partner and was his secretary. And she obviously raised a family. I, have, uh, I had a brother who unfortunately died really young at 60 of pancreatic cancer, uh, who was a very well-known filmmaker. He, his name is Jeff Tuckman. He, um, he was a, did a lot of work in uh, film, in documentaries, in politics and stuff. He was the guy who made the movie called The Man From Hope, which was the movie that made, got Bill Clinton elected president during the Democratic Convention back in 96. So anyway, he unfortunately died really young. And um, so anyway, that. that's sort of, those are the dark parts of my uh, history. <laughs> my parents fell in love, came to America, got, you know, started a family. Um, I had a wonderful, privileged, unconditional love type of background with two really great parents, you know, who had found their American dream. And they, while many of the people who lived their lives came out really sort of dark and, and, and angry and victim-y, they had sort of found each other and that sort of gave them this sort of special zest for life and i tell you all this to say that it i think it's contributed to my energy my adrenaline my love of life my you know uh, d uh, my it, the importance for me of the human element and the human interaction my father was a he called himself a humanist he was a firm believer that one-on-one -on -one communication between one person and another he did it through the uh you know the profession of medicine I do it through the profession of social media and being a trader on the floor, which for many decades has been the most ultimate confrontation, interaction, communication between two people. So, um, you know, that was my upbringing. That was my background. And that's really formed me to be the person I am today. One of, you know, and kindness and love, one of a lot of full of joy and adrenaline, one of, you know, not a, a big, I mean, I've been privileged. I had a wonderful upbringing. So I, I accept that part of it, but I think it sort of formed their, their, uh, their upbeat and uh, life full of gratitude, having lived through what they lived through and imparted onto me has contributed yeah. to sort of, I think more than my, I mean, it's contributed to my whole journey, but I think it's contributed a lot to my, the, my most recent journey. When we started this conversation, you asked me what my feel my responsibility is here, you know, and I, I, I you started to mention it and I, I understood the question because it sort of has become one of my missions, right? You know, I'm one of the few people in my position with 37 years as a trader on the floor of the stock exchange in the investment community who is sort of embracing this new generation of traders, right? I think yeah. that's what you were talking about. You know, I've taken it upon myself as a long timer and someone with 35 years experience to embrace this new generation. And I think that is my calling at the moment. Yeah. You know, uh, you're you've been doing that 
longer than I've been alive. I'm only thirty. <laughs> you, I'm only thirty-two. Cool. So, well, I've only I've, I've been fifty-five for nine years, so I'm, I'm not much older. <laughs> I'm not much older than you. <laughs> and I, I love that story. You know, it's very. Uh, it is the American dream, and I feel like uh, a lot of people need to hear that more. You know, I feel like there's some. Uh, you know, they think it's the, the, the dream's dead or, or, you know, it can't be done or, you know, I mean, you're living proof, you know, you're, the, you're walking around breathing air and, you know, that story on the beautiful silver lining of how, how you, you know, your parents had that uh, lust for life and then they bestowed it upon you. I, I'm, did your uh, father or, or, or parents like try to get you to sort of go a particular route in, in, in your career? And, and what, how, yeah, I, I'm just curious how, how you as a young man kind of like stumbled onto uh, Wall Street. Okay, I'm gonna go back one step before I answer that question because I think relative to the lives we've been living for the last couple of years, it's important to note my parents' journey and the trials and tribulations that millions of people have suffered over the last couple of years, emotionally, physically, mentally, financially, and whatnot through COVID. You know, even though I, I got COVID, I almost died from it. I was a few hours away from death. I've had a lot of physical struggles with long COVID, multiple surgeries. I'm, I'm always forced to remember what my parents would say. You know, think about it. We were locked in our apartments, right? We may have lost a loved one. We were, you know, in isolation. We were out of work and we were obviously strapped in so many different ways. Yet we were in probably for the most part, of your community, people who had a home or still had a family. We had Netflix and Airbnb or, or Uber Eats delivering us food. And so we thought that was like, how, you know, don't, does anybody really understand how can I survive this kind of experience? And I'm always reminded, and I have to dig deep into it and go back to my, my parents' beginnings to realize it's really all perspective. You know, they spent four years in prison with, you know, with everyone in their family being murdered. And that's 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 a pandemic in its own way. So I think people need to understand it's you know, look, and I don't trust me. I can't I, I never presume the pain and suffering that people have gone through that I've gone through in the last two and a half years. But I want people to realize where that it could be worse, that we must get up every morning and find some gratitude in our lives right, that we must try and connect to another human being. And it's not about, you know, how many toys and money you have really, you know, uh, uh, that it's really about how we can empower and build each other up and make the most change and effectiveness in a positive way to our community. Because, you know, we're about to start coming out of this pandemic, we hope. And, you know, uh, uh, people have gone through a lot of emotional and physical and mental and financial stress over the last two years. And I think we need each other. People need to communicate, open that door again, not hiding behind, you know, Instagram and all this other horse shit. And yeah. so this is a very special time. But relative to your question about my journey, you know what? No, there was no direct line uh, from me being a kid to coming to Wall Street by any means. Historically, at the time I got to Wall Street, 1985, most people that worked on the street, let's be clear to your audience, there's people upstairs in the community who are the MBAs of the world who have done a lot more schooling than people from the street, which is Wall Street, this is stock exchange. Um, it's a different community, right? Those are the people who have the MBAs, have been to college and la, la, la. And I have 
almost a full MBA and I did go to college, but I'm not the norm here on the floor of the stock exchange, at least not historically. Most of their parents worked here and the families were in the business. Mine was not, as I described, my father was a doctor. He came from Europe. Wall Street was not where my trajectory was. My trajectory was to be a doctor, right? I'm a Jewish kid from New York. My father's yeah. a doctor. You're going you're gonna to become a doctor. But that was not my particular calling. Along the way, I did lots of things. As a kid, uh, I was a bit of a hustler. I was an entrepreneur. I loved to wheel and deal through high school. Um, you know, but I was always somebody, I was a people person. I love to interact with human beings and stuff. At the age of 18, I left. I spent a year in Israel on a kibbutz. And then I came back. I went to college. I studied agriculture. Um, and I got into the music business. I started managing jazz bands all over Europe. That was sort of the beginning of one of my business ventures in life. I ended up dropping out of the ag. I, I finished ag school and got a degree in plant and soil science. That was going to be my dream after the year in Israel, but it didn't look like a realistic future for me. And so I ended up studying business. I do have an older, older brother who was a young boy my father adopted during the war. His parents had been killed. He survived the war with my father and my grandfather. He came to America and uh, became a very wealthy, uh, powerful businessman. So he was my one of my spiritual mentors, uh, my professional mentors growing up. Yeah. Uh, he's, uh, he's now 90 years old, so he's many, many decades older than I am. But he was big in business. He was in the oil business, stock market and whatnot. So when I realized agriculture wasn't my calling, you know, I kind of reached out to him and he says, go, you'll be a great businessman. Go do business. So I studied international business. I moved back to New York to get an MBA. I ended up opening up a record store, which is super cool. In 1980, it was the heart of, you know, Studio 54 and this and that. I was trading commodities at night. I built this incredible uh, model after a European record store. We had listening booths and I had an art gallery and I had, you know, a coffee shop. I had a, a, an espresso bar. This is 1980. Wow. This is 1980, right? So it was a very cool, uh, ahead of its time. Very play. bohemian, avant-garde time. Correct. And all the jazz musicians, I was managing a jazz, number of jazz bands at the time. I had a record company and all the musicians would come and hang out in the store. We never really were a viable store. People came in, they listened to music. We played music. We hung out. It was sort of fun. And it, it, it stayed around for about a year and a half. And during the, uh, during the day, sometimes, I was getting an MBA at night and I was trading commodities during the day. So I was, I've always been a good multi, I've always been a good multitasker. And then I ended up closing the record store. Things got a little bit crazy. It was the eighties. It was New York. And I got a little bit off, off the rails there. And so I decided to just go as far away from New York as possible. So I ended up uh, going to West, live in West Africa. And I lived on in the people's Republic of Benin, which is in next to Nigeria and Togo, used to be called Dahomey. And mm. I had a friend, a Norwegian friend who uh, ran an oil company there. And this is before computers. This was just the beginning of computers, 1983. Right. And so I, uh, he told me, I, I started studying computers. It was Lotus 123, way before your time. It was before Excel and anything, right? I mean, I believe right. you know, the first Apple, yeah. com it was before even Apple had come out. So I ended up running the computer for this oil company in West Africa for almost two years, from 83 to 85, and uh, doing the accounting for the company and whatnot. And uh, it was an amazing experience. I, as wherever I go, I get deep into the, to the, uh, the culture, 
where I was. We became initiated to a voodoo cult. We went out and hung out in the villages on the weekends and played music. So it was really an amazing experience. I learned about yeah. the oil business, learned about computers, learned about accounting. In 1985, after being there for about a year and a half, um, I realized my time was done. It was time to move on. And I did that a lot, right? <laughs> um, not not because anybody particularly was chasing me. It was just time to do something new. I was 27. It was time to get on with my life. And so I came back to the States, May 23rd. My father, as I said, he was a well-known doctor in New York at a patient who ran a brokerage firm in New York. And he had a number of patients who were in the business. And my older brother sort of inspired me to get into stocks. He said, you know what? The floor of the stock exchange is perfect for you. You're a high energy, adrenaline people person. Let's, let's give it a shot. So I got a summer job as a teletypist here on the floor of the exchange. I just started in a new company now. And literally where I'm working now is where I worked in 1985. It was the beginning of, you know, the, the jobs on Wall Street, there's no training for them. Everybody who comes down here, it doesn't matter who your dad is, where you come from, you start at the bottom and you hopefully rise to the top if it's your calling. So right. I was a teletypist, 1985. I loved it. I knew the minute I arrived here, this was my calling. It was about adrenaline, energy, people. It was beautiful numbers, thinking on your feet, freestyling. And, uh, and I stayed. I've been here for 37 years. My trajectory was a quick and fast and furious one, which was cool because I ended up, I was good at what I did. And my, my assets, the things that I'm good at, which are numbers, thinking on your feet, high energy people were the necessary assets to become good as a broker, which was my end, uh, uh, the end result of my hard work here on the floor was to become a broker on the stock exchange. This is, this is a seat on the stock exchange, this little badge on my shoulder, the number 588 I've had for 34 years, gives me the right to trade stock as a broker on the floor. And so I was a, a, a teletypist that became an option clerk, a retail clerk, an institutional clerk, and then I was able to get a seat on the stock exchange. One of the companies I worked for decided they would bring me out as a broker that I had paid my dues fairly quickly because historically it takes seven to 10 years to get a seat. And I sort of was in the right place at the right time. You know, in, in the early 1900s, there were certain like taxi medallions. There were 1,354 seats that were minted, like yeah. an NFT, like an yeah. NFT, I guess. <laughs> and, um, and that's how many seats have been forever and ever. And they traded up in value depending on the way the market was trading or the demand for brokers on the floor. And at different times through the 40s, 50s, 60s, they were all being utilized. They became a very good investment because they went from being worth 30000 in 1929 to $8 million in 1990, whatever, when they went public. Um, but that's been my journey. So I've been on the floor for 37 years. Wow. Now, for the, our listeners who, who don't know what an options clerk is or an institutional clerk, maybe you could just touch on that. Absolutely. So you have a brokerage firm, a JP Morgan, a Morgan Stanley. Would a brokerage, a Charlie, would, like, uh, would like TD Ameritrade or, or, or E-Trade be considered a broker? A brokerage yeah, absolutely, firm? Absolutely. Yeah. They are more of your retail trading firms. Back in those days, there weren't a lot of retail traders. You have to realize it. Yeah. That before the democratization of the trading community, which is our new world we live in, there were things called accredited investors. The only people who could actually have access to the stock market were people who had enough money where if they wanted to open up an account, they went to Merrill Lynch or J.P. Morgan, and they had to prove that if they invested the money and they lost it, it would not affect their standard of living for five years. Very few people could do that. Yeah. Right? You have to be a pretty much part of the one or 10% to be able to be an accredited investor. 
So there was no such thing as a retail investor. Maybe people, you know, who are in a job with a 401k or whatever. And those things are not, you know, those are fairly recent historic events also. So a institutional curse. So you had more institutional brokerage firms and wealthier people brokerage firms. And right. so they would have they would have assets under management. They would have uh, trading floors where they had asset managers, portfolio managers. So they'd put all their money together. They would decide where the firm was going to invest their money. They would decide in the morning, we're going to buy a million shares of IBM, a million shares of Home Depot, stuff like that. We're going to sell half a million shares of whatever, you know, whatever it may be at the time, uh, Hormel or, or, or Costco or whatever it was. And um, so they would send, they would generate an order upstairs. This is before cell phones. This is before computers. This is before any of the new technology used to actually interact. Things were done by people sitting on a desk, writing up an order on paper, calling it down to the floor. I mean, I think I even have a, I mean, these are the pads we used to write the orders down on. I can sort of make, you know, you would get it. So then they would pull the orders yeah. down to the floor. The phone, the, I'm in a booth right now. The You would get, you'd pick up a phone. The person on the desk would say, buy a million shares of XYZ. He would write it down on a pad like this, buy a million shares of XYZ. He would call me in. I was his broker. He would hand me the piece of paper. Here, I'll pull off an order. He will we'll make an order, buy one million shares of IBM at $137, he would rip the order off, he'd hand it to me and I'd go out to the crowd where I just showed you, right? Um, yeah. And I would go out there and there would be a crowd, there would be open outcry, right? There were no cell phones, there were no computers, everything was done one human being to another. You just had to look like you have a question. You, know, you just had to shout it out to the... Right, who, it, was called open, it, was, it was called open yeah. outcry. You go into the market maker, the market maker represented the um, the company, okay, he was there to create a smooth and active market. There were buyers in the crowd, sellers in the crowd. If I was a buyer, I would ask where you want to get the lay of the land. What does the yeah. landscape look like? You have two buyers, three sellers. We would have a conversation. Are you a limited buyer? Can you pay any price? Why are you here? Is there news out? What do the sellers want to do? And we would put together a trade, a block of stock, right? You have three buyers, two yeah. sellers, the market maker, was there to facilitate the trade. So if there was 50,000, three buyers of 150,000 to buy, and there was a seller or two sellers of 50,000, and there was an imbalance of 50,000 to sell, the market maker would step in and say, I will sell 50,000 and we can put together 150,000 share trade. That was all wow. being done face-to-face -face human beings, right? Open outcry. We, How you know, if it, was, it was the yeah. greatest thing in the world. I mean, I, I wish we had it now. You know, it doesn't exist because now we are one one handheld computer to another. We can sit yeah. in the back room. So that's none of it. But that was the most. Look, if you go back to the original Wall Street movie, you'll see it. If you go back to, you know, to a little bit of a Jordan Balfour story, who I'm not a big fan of, who's just a complete, utter criminal. Uh, but, yeah. you know, I think everyone, if they want to see there's some great stuff on Google, you know, to look up old open outcry trading on the floor of the new stock exchange. There's some amazing videos about that. Did you ever get a black eye down there or give somebody a black eye? No, no it, never got, it never got rough. It never got rough, but I could imagine guys piling on top of each other and yelling. You know what? Look, the open out. Oh, my God. Everybody wants to talk to me now. Um, open outcry did get a little bit physical. Um, you know, it was uh, it was some screaming and yelling. 
I oh, would yeah. imagine at certain times there were probably some fisticuffs altercations. I didn't actually see some of those. They usually look, you have to realize we had a huge support staff of governors, of super supervisors and whatnot. And since there was some semblance of sanity on the floor, not much, uh, <laughs> that before, before things actually got to fisticuffs, they used to use to calm everyone down. But, you know, things did get a little crazy. You have to realize money is a funny thing. You know, you're representing a customer who is, wants you to do the best thing for them. And when things got wild and crazy, things got wild and crazy. Oh, yeah. yeah. Now, now, Peter, as things evolved um, on the floor and times were changing, how were you able to adapt to those changes? Do you have any, I, I, I'm still a little curious about what, um, what is your niche? It, do you have a, 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 you froze. There we go. I was, uh, yeah, as things evolved on the floor, how did you adapt? And then the second question was, I, I'm curious to know like what your, because uh, there's so many different ways to make money in the market. You know, there's a million ways to skin a cat. Do you have a particular niche where a lot of uh, professional, like, you know, hedge fund managers, they, they've got this one shtick, you know what I mean? And, and, and some of them are only short I sell. Have, I have a sh Yeah. I have so, a shtick. I have a shtick, no question. Some guys only do options, you know, some people only go long and people only do large cap or some people only do mid cap or small cap. Uh, so yeah, those are, those are some, I think our audience would really benefit from, from hearing from you, how you, okay. how you picked and adapted and then what your sort of shtick is. Okay. I did not, I am not a proponent of technology. I still do not own a computer. I mean, I have my iPhone, which has taken me a while. I, so I'm a real people person. I'm a hands-on guy. So I do not, I did not adopt technology <laughs> well. And I was actually the last person to give up paper trading on the floor and finally pick up the handheld computer which they had given us because they said if you don't you won't be able to trade here any longer so i didn't i, I really was trying to hold on to the past and uh and i held on as long as i could so i didn't adapt well to that um but i've tried to maintain oh so things fast sort of got fast and furious the technology got pretty advanced cell phones came along you know we have these machines now that we use to interact stock by trade by trade, uh, share by share. And so, uh, you know, I had to jump in with all two feet in because, you know, I, otherwise I was going to get passed on by time. And so I did that because I loved what I do. Uh, and I did. And um, but I have tried to preserve as much of the human interaction as I can. You can take your handheld computer. You can get orders sent from upstairs. You can sit in your booth and just kind of trade in the dark in a dark pool, they call it right? And not let people know right. what you're doing and stuff like that. Or you can still interact to a certain extent. There are not as many people as there were down here back in the day, but they are, it is one of the great communities of all time. Historically, this has been the most philanthropic group of people. They are wonderful. Now we have, you know, much less people, but we do entertain a lot of celebrities, a lot of IPO and CEOs who come down. Today, we had the commissioner of the uh, fire department from New York, rang the closing bell every day. We have a different person. If your audience Googles me, you'll see everybody from, you know, Shaquille O'Neal to the prime minister of Ireland to DJ Khaled, who's been down here, you know. So that is the fun part. You know, the interaction in a trading world is a little bit tampered by the fact that I have a computer between me and my, my, my cohorts, but I still try and maintain the human element as much as I can, you know. And so that's one thing. Um, your second, what was your second? Oh, what's my shtick? 
So look, everybody, as you said, everybody down here has a different shtick. Some people are, I mean, everyone has different customers that their companies have and they work for. So there are things that everybody right. specializes in. I happen to be a, 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 I don't want to mix people's minds up because their market makers used to be called specialists, right? They are now market makers. They're there to create smooth and active markets, the buyers and sellers together. I am, yeah. a mar- I am not a market maker. I am not a specialist. I am a trader and a broker, but I do have something where I put my attention and that is in trading the S&P 500. So I've, I and a number of people around me have built a trading model around the spiders, the SPYs, right? Those are the right. futures on the S&P 500. And so we track 378 stocks in the S&P 500 that are traded here on the floor of the NICE. And so we try and trade um, with the information we're given. It's not inside information. There's no, we that doesn't exist down here. I know people, everybody thinks that, you know, we're a bunch of bad guys. We're trying to screw the retail investor and all that. That is not true. Okay. No. We have information that we curate relative to what's going on around the world and the order flow that we're given by customers. And then we have to, everybody uses it in different ways. Some people are trading institutional money. Some people are trading hedge fund money. Some people are trading retail money. I've happened to find a niche in a business model I've built with a number of people around me for the last 12 years to trade the S&P 500. And that's what we do. Wonderful. Yeah, you, you, uh, you got something there. I mean, I think that uh, sometimes, uh, you know, just by this, I mean, all these famous guys, uh, Vanguard, uh, forget the guy's name, the founder, he's like, just Buffett, you know, Warren Buffett, they all just, they don't really pick and choose stocks. They just say, buy the indexes and, dollar average you know buy when it's up buy when it's down and and for long-term investing i don't know what time frames some of your clients are looking for if they're more short-term mid-term or long-term the longest trade i'm in for my for the clients of my company is two hours two hours yeah yeah i i uh i I I, for my for my customers strategy i trade they have other strategies but the one that i i'm working with is a two-hour trade and that's you're in, you're out, you either make money, you lose money, you're done, you start again tomorrow. And that's kind of driven me into what one of my newest callings is, which is embracing the new retail trading community that came along during COVID and Wall Street bets and Wall Street memes and Reddit and all that stuff. And yeah. uh, the democratization of the trading community. And everybody thinks they have diamond hands and do nothing but make money. However, the reality is that 88% of them uh, have already been blown up within the first two years of trading because they don't really know the rules. When everything's going up and everybody hits a buy button, it's all fun and good. And yeah. it's, they need to know it's not a get rich quick scheme. Markets don't just go up, they go down, they go sideways. And so what I've decided to do is my new calling is to embrace them for one and try and educate them for two, right? So I've curated a technical analysis trading co- course. I am the, co- the host I've collaborated with a friend I've known for 37 years who I started here on the floor with, David Green. We have a course called Wall Street Global Trading Academy. It's an online course. It's eight sections, 21 videos, eight hours, um, teaching risk management, stop orders, teaching um, technical analysis, right? Using moving averages and different criteria to use technical analysis, not fundamental analysis to become a day trader, to use this volatility and the volatility of this market to try and scalp off some nice amount of money if you can and you know what you're doing. 
It's yeah. not something you can't, you can't trade on hope. You can't trade on hype. You can't trade on FOMO. These are not trading strategies that will give you long-term, short-term trading, but long-term gains. They won't work. You may go to the well once or twice. You may get lucky. But at the end of the day, if you're not using these, these techniques that we, we teach, you're going to blow your ass up. Yeah. You know what? I'm always trying to learn something new. So I'm going to, uh, once we finish our call, I'm going to be signing up for your, for your course and webinar. I look Peter. forward to it. One of our differentiators, which is the fun part, because it's not easy. It's simple, but it's not easy. And it takes uh, discipline. It takes consistency. It takes really scratching the earth of your old habits and learning the new ones, right? And utilizing everything as we mentor our students. So David Green is an amazing teacher. A lot of people out there teach technical analysis. Not everybody can do it well, really be a good teacher. He yeah. is a great teacher. So we mentor all our students every Thursday night live, right? We do a Zoom call for the questions and answers that they have that they've learned from, from uh, taking the course. Great. And I'll be sure to link that for all of our viewers listening. I look forward to it. I'll send you the link. Yeah, thank you. Now, uh, Peter, actually, now that we're kind of on the subject of technical analysis, um, for, for me, I'm, I'm 100% just an options trader and, and, and within options, I actually don't um, mess around with too many complex uh, option strategies. I don't right. really do iron condors or butterfly spreads or credit right, right, right. debit spreads. I actually trade the uh, riskiest style of options, which are just naked, naked calls and puts. Right. Yeah. And um, I, I 100% rely on just res support resistance and trend lines and technical analysis. Okay. I, I, I'm still trying, I'm, you know, I'm always open to learning a new trick. Uh, there's so many different indicators out there that you we, can utilize, uh, like volume. We kinda, we we can, we, yeah, but that, that, look, a lot of people fill their screens, you know, so with so much shit that it looks like air traffic control at 9-11. <laughs> it's, it's unnecessary. It's unnecessary. We use three things. We use the RSI, which tells support and resistance, relative strength index. Okay, we use moving averages, the EMAs, right? The nine, the uh, 15, the 65, and the 200, which give you uh, basic, the historic data about where stocks are going to go and where there is, once again, support and resistance. And we use pivot points. Pivot points, you don't need to understand what they are. Pivot points, if you go into Thinkorswim, you can download them and put them on your chart as a dot. They also, in the, in the absence of support and resistance in any other the trade, whether you go from the one minute to five minute or whatever you're looking for, support and resistance, which is what day trading is all about. A pivot point is a mathematical formula that you plug in and we keep your screen kind of clean, right? Yeah. There are five different trades. There's a trend trade, a moving average trade, a far from moving average trade, a uh, double top, double bottom, and a base trade, right? And you keep it simple. You use... Use the good habits. Every time you get into a trade, you use the stop order. I don't care. There's no mental stop orders. That's horseshit. In a market that goes up and down a thousand points intraday, you don't use mental stops. You use stops. You can use them in options too. During the day trading, you can use stop orders. This market is, you're, you can be right. You can be right if you're yep. lucky or you can be wrong. In the old days, I always say it's not your grandfather's stock market. If you're no. wrong now, you're not wrong for a dollar. You're wrong for $50. And right. that will blow up. That will get a formula for a disaster and you'll blow up your account in one minute. You will. Absolutely. I, 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 do you find any, um, any use in order flow? I, I personally have never found any not, use in it. Not at all. You know what? 
in, in the day, sorry to interrupt you, but in the days that I described in 1985, when you saw the order flow, when you didn't see, look, right now you can use an algorithm that I can have a million shares to buy and I can only display to you 100 at a time. You can never see what the real order is. Stocks are trading and 90% of trades are 100 share lots. Back in the old days, when you had order flow that was significant and we put on the prints that I described in the beginning of this call where 100,000 shares traded, 50,000 shares traded, where you would get the understanding, well, one buyer's done, there are a few more sellers than buyers, we got rid of that guy. Now the stock's going to bounce. A million shares traded. It was a big print. These yeah. are the things where order flow made a difference. Right now, order flow, volume, things like that are absolutely are absolutely insignificant, in my opinion. It's like VWAPs and stuff like that. There are other things that are able to track technical analysis. We found over time, everyone asks us, why do you use the things we use? Because they work. It's a simple friggin' set. It works. If it's it not, works. if it's not broke, why fix it? It works. Yeah, exactly. And uh, yeah, I, I would agree with you there, hundred percent, Peter. I know. I noticed that uh, if I tried to follow unusual options activity, uh, it 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 worked less than it than it did work, or it it didn't right. work as often as it worked. Because it's like Correct. you 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 don't you know a lot of these big boys and 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 institutions. They they'll sell those calls, so it looks like somebody bought a big lot of out of the money calls, and the and the whole time you know they're selling those. But it yeah yeah, so it, it just could be all, it could look it could, it could be, be a, it, could be a, it could be a hedge against the massive position on the other side in the in the equities, right? Yeah. You don't know what they're doing, and to think everybody I I when we do our Q and A's, we everyone asks questions for about an hour and a half, and it's fascinating to know. And I do a lot of a discord talk with different trading groups and whatnot. And I hear everyone, this, they get wrapped up in this conspiracy, this chatter, right? They're, they're, they're only experiences that is the Reddits and the Wall Street bets and all this horseshit on the internet of people saying, oh, those guys, they, the specialists know where my stop order is and they take the stock down, they take me out and it goes up. Or, the, you know, none of these things that, that people get wrapped up in that narrative that the big guys have to screw the little guy Sometimes it may be real. Sometimes it may be done not. But trying to understand it will not make my trading any better. Spending a lot of time trying to analyze all this other horseshit, FOMO and hype and hope will never make my trading better. It is, yeah. it is not. It's a battle I don't choose to fight. Am I? We're still, look, even me, I'm down here on the floor of the stock exchange. I'm still a small peon in the big world of the big millenniums and the, 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 the vanguards and whatever, right? I can't even pretend to know what they know. I can't even pretend to see their order flow. And if I did, I'm not even sure the market would react in a way that I could figure it out. We're seeing great earnings come out and the stock go down $50. We see bad earnings come out and the stock goes up $50. We see the Federal Reserve releasing information that should be bearish. The market goes up a thousand points. We hear the guys start talking and it goes down a thousand points. Last two weeks, we've seen volatility where the market was down 1,200 points at 1130 and it was up 100 points, a rally of 1,800 points in the S&P by three o'clock in the afternoon. If you have anyone on your call who is able to, uh, with an opinion, figure that shit out, Tell them to come down. I'll give them a goddamn job. <laughs> oh, I love that. It's, That's great. It's just the way it That's is. It's your, just energy, the way it is. Your, your energy is so infectious, Peter. Because I love what I do. Yeah. You know, it, it's, not, it's not my line, but I always say, if you love something you do, you'll never work a day in your life. You're giving me more life just by Good. having this talk my with pleasure. you. So that, I really, that's what it's really, all about. Really enjoying it. 
So, uh, yeah, I mean, I would say if there's any kind of market manipulation, it's usually in the uh, small cap world, stocks that are trading for it's going, It's going on. But yeah. me knowing about it or trying to figure it out doesn't serve me at all. Yeah, it, yeah. yeah. It I mean, doesn't. It, it, what? Yeah. I promise you, if you were able to figure it out, there's already somebody who figured it out a little before you and is already offsetting it with some other shit that's you, you're you're not even you're still trying to figure out step A and they're already on to step C. So what is the point? We're here yeah. to try and successfully learn how to navigate a market that's more volatile than it's been in a hundred years. We want to be successful at that. We want to hit singles and doubles, slice and dice and make a little bit of money. A yep. little bit of money every day adds up to a lot more money every week and every month. But to spend a lot of time trying to analyze what all everybody's doing to me and play victim in this mode and all that other horseshit doesn't serve me. It doesn't make me money. It doesn't do anything for me except wrap my mind up in a lot of negative narrative, which I have no time for. Yeah. I, Peter, I want to share with you real quick with what how uh, how I approach the market. Maybe, uh, you know, you never know if you might be able to take this and uh, I am forever a student. if you got something that works I'm listening so so the way I approach the market is I only trade one, one once or twice a day usually the first hour because you get the you know the nice pop volatility yep. and then I'll trade awesome. the power hour at the end of the yep. day because the middle of the day to me just looks like a lot of chop choppiness I try to avoid that it's all algorithms it's all people get interested on the open on the close and the middle of the day is just five percent passive BS. Yeah. And uh, what I do is I'll scan the market. Uh, I, I just use marketwatch.com. It's free right. service. Yeah. Yeah. I love those guys. They've, they've got a, a tab under tools for um, leaders, laggers, and most volume pre-market. And they've got a, another tab for upgrades and downgrades. So okay. what I do is I look for a large cap. I only trade large cap stocks. And I look for... Um, I look for a catalyst. I look for some kind of positive catalyst. So maybe it got a really, it's a large cap stock. It's got an up price target upgrade by a first tier analyst, you know, one of the, uh, you know, UBS or right. so on and so forth, or, or it's an earnings winner. And then I go on there and I draw my lines my, and, and I wait for, you know, either a pullback to support and I'll buy. I'll, I, and by the way, I, I never buy puts. I only buy calls. And I'll just trade once in the morning. And uh, I tried to, today I traded space. I took the SPCE. That was a big winner yeah, for us. Yeah, yeah. I sold early. I, I, I kind of paper handed that. I, 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 I had up my mindset on 10 as the big resistance and it ended up going to 11. And I sold way before it even got to 950. So yeah, I, I kind of paper. You, are you using stop orders? No. You're not. Why wouldn't you, if you're in the money, and you put in a stop and use a trailing stop so that if you, if you, yeah, you protect yourself against selling too early because you can make a sale, sell half your position, yeah, raise right. your stop up to break even so you never turn a winning trade into a losing trade and then just let it go as the more it goes. If it ever gets back to your even and keep raising your stop up so that yeah. you just keep making a little extra money and take advantage of the extra pop that you didn't predict. Right, exactly. You're so true. And this is something that I feel I like my trade is the next level. But there are things like you, that I struggle with to, to, I guess you could say, like you said, yeah, stop losses, trailing stop losses. I think that's the next step for me personally. That's your next step. Well, I'll teach yeah. you that. No, thanks. Thanks, Peter. 
And that's uh, what our course does. Our course teaches you all of that stuff. Yeah. That is that is advanced trading techniques. And I, I I took one more trade today. It was the U U. It was a USPT before the close. UPST. UPST. Right. Before, right before the close. Okay. I got the 150 calls, and uh, I think it's trading at. It was at. I bought around 100, and it's trading after hours around like 135, 140. Beautiful. Did you get out yet? Or are you waiting till tomorrow? Uh, I I can't sell until tomorrow when the market okay. opens. Calls. All but, right. Beautiful. Yeah, I, I figured you know they were so beat down and. Uh, they're a hot stock. They're a hot stock right now. I think with they've with been a hot stock for a year. They're one of the yeah. meme stocks. The stock's gone yeah. up, right? I mean, it's where is it down from? Three or four hundred down to a hundred? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it got cut in a quarter. At some point, it's got to be a buy, right? Yeah, and they, they, I think they, they had a, they had a, a, a modest beat on earnings, but the big, the big news was the they got approved for like a buyback stocks. They to buy back their own stocks. I think it was like four hundred million or something. There's your catalyst, but those things don't last. So be careful. I wouldn't get greedy on that trade. No, buyback, getting... buyback news. There's a bunch of people who are responding the same way you did. When that runs out, stocks are going to come right back in. Yeah, that that which goes up must come down. Hey, Peter, Absolutely. if you ever, ever want to come down to West Palm Beach, I got a pool in the backyard. I'll take you. Looks awesome. I'll take you golfing. I don't know if you like golfing. I've never, I've never, I've never held a golf club in my life. Hey, well, you know, one thing I, I, now that we're, I got you and we're talking, I, I want to run something by you and just to see what you think about it, because I don't know. There's one company out there that's doing it. They're, they're called a uh, trade collective dot com. And uh, they're they're kind of labeling themselves as the anti hedge fund. So what you do is you like sign up, for, you know, you, you get an account there. It's a monthly membership fee. And uh you you uh, you got to sign all these waivers, but what it does is it it allows like a an a, an algorithm bot into your into your uh, into your brokerage. Sorry about that. Into okay. your into your brokerage account, and it and it reflects everything that the the bot does in, in your account for a for a monthly membership. Fee. It's, a mirror, it's a mirror trade. You're a mirror yeah. trade. Yeah, and and a I was lot thinking of, of a lot of companies doing it. And do you sign up for an it'll, it'll mimic whatever that that portfolio is doing? Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm not. Do, I'm not. I'm actually trying to do it myself for for options traders, for people that just want to trade options. It's definitely higher risk. So I, you know, I'd tell a guy if you have, uh, you know, if you if you whatever your account, whatever your portfolio is, man, eh, put ten percent or less into it. You know, right. and uh, I was thinking one thing that would be really cool is to offer it to brokerages as a white label product. So you could, there's you could, a hundred, hundred yeah. it's, there's a hundreds of them. Yeah. I'm being approached by every one of them. They all want me to put my face on it. There's yeah. a lot it started out with eToro, right? So eToro is an Israeli brokerage firm. They came up with the idea. I believe they were the first ones, maybe not where basically people go in and set up a portfolio and then people can mimic it. Yeah. Right. So let's say he's got a portfolio with returns of 20 percent uh, on his on the investment. I set up an account with, you know, a percentage. I mean, I, I may be big, big as him, smaller than him, bigger than him. And whatever his trades are, it will automatically I hit the mirror button and it will mimic his trades. And yeah. uh, so it's being done all over. They're popping up all over. There's one called Iris. Uh, there's a couple on the horizon. You know, I'm not really clear why. Besides the ego of it all, why anybody yeah. would post that, 
except he hopes that maybe all this momentum and see people will buy it up and then he'll have more returns on investment unless you're compensated for sharing your portfolio information, then I don't understand the model. Right. Yeah. I, I, rather, I, I, rather, I rather counter that. Look, it's that old concept. If you're hungry and I give you a box of food, you'll be hungry in a week. Yeah. But if I teach you how to trade, we are one of our taglines is learn once, earn for a lifetime. I would rather come into this thing as not just a mimic copycat account type person. I'd love to say, you know what? The market is exciting. The barriers to entry are down. Take three months, learn how to trade, and then you can have disposable income, whether you do this for fun, whether you use it to make a couple thousand dollars a month, whether you use it just as some tool that you have going forward on your resume. It is something that everybody should have as a skill. It's super fun and exciting. Screw the copycat shit. Your lips to God's ears. Eh? That, I, uh, I agree with you. You know, and I, I look, I, I have very, very humble background uh, origins. I don't, you know, my parents, very um, modest folks. They, you know, my, my dad is a, a groundskeeper. My mom was, uh, she sewed clothes and stay at home mom, like not a lot of money. And, uh, you know, I, I, I didn't go to college. I, I, it wasn't for me. I, I was kind of more of a, an autodidact, self-taught guy. And I was very uh, interested in experimenting with life and all different uh, avenues. And I just explored different things. And I worked a lot of, you know, dead end, not, you know, dead end jobs. Like, you know, right. you know, I'll call it what it is. You know, I, I, I was a server. I was a, 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 a gardener. I was a, uh, I trimmed, I trimmed weed in Northern California. I, you awesome. know, all that stuff. You were a bud. I know you were a budmeister. A bud, <laughs> exactly. What, what, a bud tender was now what, what they call it. Is it great? Oh name? yeah, bud tender. That's what they're called yeah, these yeah. days. Absolutely, and, 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 greatest and, job on earth, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No what stress. About? Listen to no music. Stress. Listen to jazz. Exactly. And uh, you know, I'm doing a small account challenge right now for a lot of our new members in in, in my group, and I just want to show people that you can take a, a two thousand uh, dollar portfolio and and. and I mean, with, with, with a small account, right. That's what right. I would consider a small account. I took, yeah. I took, I, I made a, I made 600 bucks today on space with a $2,000 account. And if you can do that daily at the end of the week, you pay yourself. And I mean, it's a beautiful and, thing. That's all it's about, man. It's, it's a beautiful thing. Yeah. I remember, I remember Peter, what it was like when I was, uh, I was, I was riding a bicycle in Seattle, delivering food on Uber Eats. And I would work eight hours pedaling on the bike up and down those to make hills. 250, to make 250. To make 250, exactly. Yeah. And, and that space trade, I got out way early. It was a big winner, but I still, you know, made 600 bucks. And that trade- and you were done and you had, you had look, 15. we always talk about it. You were done by 10 o'clock, 10.30 in the morning. Yeah. And you had time, which is that one commodity you can't get back. No. Right? You need everything. People need to understand that. Right? Yeah. We're not talking about something. You, look, you can't. We have certain rules in our school that if you hit, you have a target, how much you want to make a day. And if you hit it, you turn your machine off and you go home. Yep. Okay. If you are having a losing day and you have three losing trades, you turn your machine off and you go home. If you have three winning trades and you make your target, but you decide you have diamond hands and you can't leave, you cut your trading size down. And if you give back 20%, the 20% rule, you turn your machine off and go home. So there are rules to this. There is a discipline to this, right? Yeah. There are habits that are good and habits that are bad. 
most people that do this do not succeed. Most people that do this are not successful at all at this game. And they are wrong. They are losers for certain very simple reasons. There are five mistakes that day traders make that differentiate them from a successful one or an unsuccessful one. They'll turn a winning trade into a losing trade. They'll turn a winning day into a losing day. They will yeah. not have a plan when they get into a stock. You cannot, you have to ask yourself a question every time you get into a stock, why am I buying or shorting this stock, right? Because it sets up technically. Every time you get into a trade, you put in a stop order down 10%. If the trade goes against you, you never lose a lot of money. And if the trade goes in your favor, up 10%, you take off half your trade, you raise your stop up to even, so you never turn a winning trade into a losing trade. How great is that feeling once you've taken off half and you know you can't lose? You're yeah. like sitting back with a cigar watching the, the cha-ching to cha-ching for the rest of the next 20 minutes. And every time you sell it at $51, you raise your stop up to 50 and a half. 51 and a half, you raise your stop to 51. You're playing with the bank's money. It is a dream come true. At 11 o'clock, you turn your machine off and you go to the, you go to the pool. And you sit back, have a Coca Loco and a sandwich. What's <laughs> than that? <laughs> oh God, it's so true. Now I talked about my winners, but did you have what would you would call beginner's luck when you got in into the industry? And and were you did you ever have any uh, any 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 setbacks? I I, I personally I, I was very slow learner. Uh, I was a very late bloomer. Um, I've been doing I've been dabbling in options for five years so not not long not long but for the first three and a half years every year i was red i blew up every account that i ever opened for for, so for a long time say, for a long time this. i've never owned a share of stock in my life personally okay so i've been in the business for 37 years i made a deal with myself a long time ago because of the regulations i'm under and because i know that money's a funny thing if i was worried about my own profit and loss I wouldn't be focused on the customer and I'm a customer man to the, to the, to the death. So I've never bought or share recently. I inherited some money and I put it in some kind of a managed account. But before that, I never personally bought or yep. sold stock for myself. That went my, my purity of motive in trading for a customer is not one bound by my own P and L. Okay. You asked me if I've had any bumps in the road or ups. Absolutely. I've had successes and I've had failures right? Many of them along the way, you know, and it's, look, we always, that's that great line. It's not a matter of how many times uh, you, 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 um, you fail. It's how many times you get up, you fall yeah. and you get back up, right? It's not a matter of how many times that you fall down. You know, every time you do, you got to get up. And I think we, look, we started this conversation describing my, my beginnings with my family. And that's kind of what kept me that way. You know, that if you let the negative stuff or you let the, the dark days of, of, of your life um, define you, well, then you're going to live a long, miserable life. You know, there are people who survived what my parents lived through and have gone on to have a really dark, miserable life because they didn't embrace the, the positivity. They kept looking, driving in the rear view mirror. So I've learned, and there are a number of spiritual premises that I follow in a big way and gratitude and kindness and joy are some of them. I follow a guy named David Meltz. You know who David Meltz? David Meltzer was a um, was a gentleman. He's the guy that Jerry Maguire movie was made after. Made after he was a big sports management guy uh, in the 80s. He made a lot of money and then he blew up his whole life and blew up all his money. 
and he embarked on. They made the movie over him with uh, Tom Hanks. Oh, okay. Um, uh, with no, Tom, with Tom uh, Cruise. Cruise. Um, and he's embarked. He in the last number of years, probably a decade plus now, he's embarked on a mission to bring joy to a billion people throughout the world. So he's one of my inspirations. He's one of my motivators, right? So you know, look, if we let the 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 the, the struggles define us. We will always be a victim and we will never find happiness in our life. If we yeah. think we need to just die with a lot of toys, toys and prizes, you know what? It's kind of an empty life. Success without fulfillment is an empty life. I've seen it. I've been there. I've known it. I grew yeah. up with it. So, um, you know, I've had many, many, many bottoms and I've had bottoms where the bottom fell out of the bottom and I picked myself back up, you know, with the help of a lot of people around me. And I did have people around me, but, you know, sometimes they let me fall. And they made me hit my own bottom, you know, and I sort of looked at myself, I brushed myself off, you know, I put on my big boy pants and I kept moving. There was a yeah. period of time in 2006 where I was really at a spiritual bottom, financial bottom and a hard time. And I came to work for two years without making a dime, hoping. And I talked about this on a podcast with David Meltzer recently. I knew I was taught that opportunity, you know, I kind of cowered under the covers. I was depressed. I thought I'd never make money again. And I lied there under the covers, under the bed, thinking, you know, this is horseshit. And somebody said, look, opportunity is not going to find you under the covers, <laughs> right? You get up, you act, you act as if everything's okay. You go to work, whether you're making money or not, and opportunity will find you. And it did, right? There's a gentleman, one of my customers now, who I speak to every day. We hadn't seen each other in years. I ran into him on the subway. He said, how you doing? And I was honest with him. I said, you know what? I'm not doing shit. I'm actually just going to work to go to work, hoping something is going to come in the window. He said, I'll give you a shot. And we started to trade together. And he ended up becoming one of my first new customers in 2007. And he's still my customer to this day. So I say that all to say that people are, are going to, and I, we cannot presume the obstacles people have gone through for the last couple of years now with COVID and all this other shit. But you know, you never give up. You get up with some gratitude. You brush yourself off, whether you need to pray, meditate, whatever it is you know, embrace somebody else, be of service to another human being, you know, and get up and go and give it a shot, right? No opportunity will not find you cowering with a bottle of friggin' booze in your basement, crying and being a victim and feeling sorry for yourself. It's just not. That's my experience, right? You got to get up and go get dressed, dress to impress, go out there and give it a shot. You know, if you can't help yourself, help someone else, helping someone else and getting out of the space in your head, is a wonderful way to empower yourself and someone else and get out of the uh, the muck and mire of the shit, you know, that life sometimes throws at you. It yeah. happens. You yeah. know what? If, you, if the shit hits the fan, turn off the fan, clean up the shit and keep moving. <laughs> oh, God, I love that. Peter, this has been the best podcast we have done yet. Literally, awesome. this is my absolute favorite conversation I've had with another human being in the world of finance awesome. with you. And how, how, I, I got to come out. I got to come up to New York. I used to live in Brooklyn and in, uh, in, um, uh, in uh, Lefferts. Williamsburg. No, it was Lefferts Gardens. Prospect Lefferts okay. Gardens. I don't okay. know. They call it Little Jamaica. I was only there for a year. But okay. uh, I want to come. I've been on Wall Street a couple of times, you know, just because I do options. And it's right. But I, I, I don't know. I, I want to. Do people. Can people visit. You come and be my guest. You? Why? You can come visit me for sure. Oh, man. Thanks, Pete. <laughs> That's awesome. It'd be my pleasure.
and you have my contact info reach out to me anybody on this wants to learn about what i know yeah you're going to post a link where we would be happy to empower you motivate you inspire you teach you mentor you coach you you can't do it alone we're all here to be help each other out that's what it's about that's so true and uh, Peter, do you have any final words for our audience and our listeners uh, in terms of, uh, you know, fun? before, before, before you get into that, maybe uh, just uh, one more time, let people know where they can find you on um, and follow you. Sure. I'm on a lot of, I do a lot of, uh, I'm on Instagram, Einstein of Wall Street. I'm on Twitter, Einstein O Wall Street. I'm not a TikToker guy, but I do a lot of Twitter spaces. I'm doing a lot of stuff in the NFT space. Uh, uh, new projects that have to do with a cause and a mission, whether it's helping raising money for mental health or young or Gen Z women um, um, programs through Boss Beauties is what I'm doing. Unique Unicorns is what I'm doing. I'm embracing the retail trading community, doing Wall Street bets. The Wall Street Bulls came out with a NFT. So I've been working with them on that. Um, I'm, so I'm, I'm easy to reach. You DM me, you will get a response from me. And if you yeah. want to check out Wall Street Global Trading Academy, WSGTA.com. You'll find me, you know, DM me the word pain and I'll respond and I'll know that you need a little help, but I'm here. I'm here to inspire you in any possible way. But the last thing I want to say to everybody is we live in an amazing world. It's full of struggles and hardships, but there's a lot of joy out there. You need to identify what joy and kindness is all about. It's not about a matter of, you know, who dies with the most toys. It's really about how much power and joy we can bring to another human being at the end of the day that's the payoff right success with fulfillment is a great payoff find something you love to do right that's my key best little bit of advice there whether whether it's advertising and branding whether it's finance whether it's trading whether it's uh being of service whether it's you know there's there's so much out there right, right. learn something for yourself learn once earn for a lifetime guys you know don't follow the crowd stand out no matter how many times you fall down get your ass back up right and as i said before opportunity is not going to find you cowering under the covers dudes and ladies and whoever and all everyone else out there uh just get up every morning pray shake the shit off put on your big boy pants and go out there and do something good and on that note peter thank you mr einstein of wall street <laughs> i love the name i, I you, you kind of look fun. like it's, it's it, fun it, yeah it it, it, it it reminds me of like, uh, like a, yeah, just such an archetype. You know, you're, you're the really, it's you're the. Really, Aaron Burnett of CNN gave me the name, so it's a fun name. That's awesome. I love it. I'm a big fan of Einstein. A big fan of the, uh, you know, people who uh, kind of went against the grain. And Peter, it, it absolutely disrupt. Yeah. It's all about disrupt. It's all. It's yeah. all about disrupting too. You know. Yeah. Definitely. Exactly. Okay. All right. Push the button, pull the chain, out comes the brown choo-choo train. <laughs> See you later. Thanks, Peter. Bye, Talk to See you ya. soon. Thank you guys so much for listening today to another episode of Regular Investor. We appreciate the support. and We want to see you guys interacting with us on Twitter. It keeps us excited to produce amazing content for you guys. Make sure to drop a review on Spotify. Tell us how you like the podcast. On behalf of the JTSG team, we will see you in the next one.